Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPEL 232-1542. If you want to call in, be part of the conversation. I actually remembered to open up the apps page on uh, for the app chat, so if you want to send a message in through there as well, you can certainly do so. The show notes are live, joecunninghamshow.substack.com. You can go there, you can subscribe to get those in your email every day, as well as my other writings, columns, things like that that you can find at Red State, but I also put up there to make sure that uh, my followers can go ahead and get those uh, in their inbox as well. Let's get into the news of the day. There is big news nationwide for the House of Representatives, essentially... House Democratic donors are turning off the taps. They are signaling they believe the House is lost and the fight should be in the Senate. In other words, doom for the Democrats. Now, here's how it breaks down. And I mentioned my show notes because I actually have a picture of the Real Clear Politics map for the House uh, at the very top so you can see just how this breaks down based on redistricting alone. After the 2020 census, the House, there are 220 seats that are basically guaranteed to be Republican. You need 218 seats for the majority. So based on redistricting alone, the Republicans are going to get the majority in the House, barring some unforeseen circumstances, which not outside the realm of possibility, but highly, highly unlikely. The Democrats, based on redistricting, are guaranteed about 180 seats. That leaves 35 toss-ups around the country. And those are located in uh, Alaska, California, Illinois, Cal- uh, and uh, Michigan. There's also several others. Texas. But I I mentioned those again, Alaska, two in California, one in Illinois, one in Michigan, one in Texas. I mentioned those specifically. That's six seats that Republicans control that are toss ups and Democrats have really been thinking they can flip those seats in California. They have really thought they could flip those seats In Illinois, they were really hoping they could flip that seat in Michigan as well. I mean, those are blue territories that have Republicans in them. Texas 34 is down along the border. The Democrats were really hoping they could get that one as well. But there are are other places where the Democrats are forced into these toss-up races. Arizona, more in California, Connecticut... Illinois, Indiana, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, New Hampshire, New York, Nevada, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, and Washington. All in all, 29 Democratic toss-up seats, six Republican toss-up seats. And as of right now, it looks like Everybody is accepting this is going to be a Republican year. The thing to note, and this is why I mentioned the donors, the thing to note is the amount of money 
that's going into this race. The Republicans have a bit of a spending advantage, a bit of a money advantage in these House races. But the the Republicans have been in an absolute deficit when it comes to statewide Senate races in some of those swing states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Nevada, Arizona in particular, Ohio as well. They've been in a spending disadvantage because Republican donors have given money But in the case of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, that money was mismanaged and barely any has gone out. In the case of Donald Trump and his his super PACs, they've started spending money, but very, very, very late. Almost too late. We'll see if it helps. In Arizona, it might make a difference. Blake Masters has narrowed the gap there. In Pennsylvania, it could make the difference. The media reaction against the NBC interview with John Fetterman has just gone over the top. In fact, Fetterman's wife is out right now saying that the NBC reporter should be punished for listing John Fetterman's stroke symptoms. And these are all the same Democrats who felt that it was perfectly all right to speculate on Donald Trump's mental health all the time. But it's it's, uh, absolutely abhorrent for you to mention Joe Biden's or John Fetterman's, for example. But anyway, the House... Politico had a story out this morning. House Democrats retrench as GOP money floods the map. GOP Representative Mike Garcia holds one of the House Republicans' most vulnerable districts. I think this is the second, the 22nd district in California, or 25th, something like that. But Democrats have barely spent a dime on TV to take him down. The decision, according to those involved, was driven by a relative lack of resources. As Republicans' biggest House super PAC floods the election with hundreds of millions of dollars, their Democratic counterparts have lagged far behind. Some members of California Democratic delegation, of which Nancy Pelosi is one, by the way, were alarmed by the decision to leave Garcia's district untouched, and they have urged their party's campaign arm in recent weeks not to abandon a seat that President Joe Biden won by double digits, according to multiple people familiar with the discussions. Similar pleas are coming from Texas, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere as frustrated Democrats bemoan that their party's outside groups are unable, or some say privately unwilling, to devote precious funds toward what they see as winnable seats. The big issue, as the story goes on to say, is that the money isn't coming in for House elections. The donors have written the House off. And when the donors are writing you off, you can expect there's something to it because the donors, especially the mega donors, especially the big donors who like to put the money into these races, they want to spend strategically. They want to spend in the places that they know it will have a major impact. It could help turn the tide of an election. And if they the mega donors with their advisors, with their strategists are telling them, I'm not so sure if they're looking at the information out there and saying, I don't think this is it. They're going to take their money and go elsewhere. A lot of small dollar donations have gone the same way. We've put so much of an emphasis on control of the Senate because it is at 50 50. Everybody's dumping their money into the Senate races and Democrats have enjoyed a lot of money going in there. Some other high-profile races as well. There's been a lot of outside money that's gone to Stacey Abrams. And Abrams' campaign is absolutely floundering. 
all of the money is going to the Senate, is going to these uh, high, higher profile gubernatorial races. It's not going to House races. And as a result, the Democrats, who were hoping to try to flip uh, Republican seats in what I can only assume was them putting up a really good front because the alternative is that they are completely delusional. They were hoping to flip these seats because they they were really wanting to make sure that they could mitigate as much of the damage as possible. But the problem for them is that the best way to mitigate damage is to be on the right message. I know it's broken record time. I'm going to say it again. You have James Carville and other Democrats out there who are saying the same thing. If every other word out of your campaign's mouth is abortion, you're not in tune with what voters actually care about right now. You just had a disastrous inflation report yesterday that the White House, their best case scenario was to spend it, was to spin it as, hey, big cost of living increase for seniors on Social Security. That was their spin. That's all they had. Joe Biden late yesterday to press event said, if you elect Republicans this midterm, inflation is going to get worse. That's all he's got. And voters are looking and say, well, you've been in power this whole time. Inflation wasn't nearly this bad until you got into office. How can Republicans make it worse? And voters, it's rare that it happens in history, but voters like Republicans more than Democrats right now. Those swing voters like the prospect of Republicans being in charge more. And so Democratic donors are turning off the taps and moderates are swinging toward the Republicans. It's doom for the Democrats. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we've got some other stories to get to today, not just midterm stuff. Let's talk about some more education issues. We'll have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. All right, I, I had lots of topics I wanted to get to, but I have to go on this one. This is the Joe Cunningham Show. You guys can call in uh, 232-1542. You can send a message to the KPL app chat. Um, so the Daily Beast has a piece out. DeSantis stunt backfires. Martha Vineyard migrants to get crime victim visas. And the uh, subhead on this is karma. Need to explain something. Words still mean things. That's not karma. Okay? The DeSantis stunt, it did its job. This isn't some, this whole crime victim visa thing is not some thing that's going to blow, that blows back on on DeSantis. Not even a little bit. But the Daily Beast is one of those. It's a very far left publication. It it actively works as a campaign arm for Democrats, and 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 they do that openly. They flaunt it openly. This is not some secret. This is not some. Hey, did you realize this? Everybody working in politics knows it. They know that that's the place you go if you want to get an anti-Republican message out there. There are friends of mine who are very very violently anti-Trump. Who, will, who are specifically called on to go write a column at the Daily Beast, and they oblige because that's the outlet to do it. If you want to get it seen by the right eyes for that message, which is mostly Democrats who want to see Republicans rebelling against Trump, that's where you go. But this isn't, a, this isn't karma. This is, okay, this is somebody getting these visas 
but it has nothing to do with rebuking. I mean, it's not some blowback to Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis doesn't care. The stunt worked. It brought attention to it. I, uh, journalists blow my mind sometimes with how ignorant they can be. Their whole industry is based on words, and yet there are so many journalists out there that forget that words actually mean things. But anyway, all right, back to the topics that I wanted to get. I, I, let me finish up before I move on uh, to kind of some state education news. The midterm elections are less than a month away. And at this point, most voters are pretty locked in. Really, once you get to the end of summer, most voters are locked in. Occasionally, you'll get what's called the October surprise. Sometimes there's an August or September surprise. But the, you know, September, October is where the last minute oppo dumps come in. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But what's interesting is that there's been no widening of the gap between uh, for example, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. In fact, tonight they have their one and only debate. Let's call it the train wreck debate just to keep it fair. But uh, but Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock will be in a debate tonight. And what's interesting is that there was a brief dip in the polling late last week, but Walker's numbers are already shooting back up in the averages. The latest poll uh, comes from Trafalgar, which, yes, is a Republican-leaning firm, but they have been incredibly accurate. The latest poll has Warnock up one over Walker. And it has Walker at four, uh, it has Walker at 45%, which is kind of where he's been hovering. But Warnock went up as much as 48, but is is kind of holding a little bit lower in this most recent poll. And there's a lot of undecided voters out there. Or not undecided, there are people who don't answer the polls, the people who don't want to talk about the issue. And there's a lot of people who just aren't getting reached by these polls. If the trend holds, if the trend that people on the left and the right privately are saying about the polls, if it holds... They're undercounting Republican voters by about two to three percent. And if Warnock is only up about three percent on average, that means it's a neck and neck race. If Brian Kemp is as successful as he is projected to be, there is some crossover vote in Georgia. It does happen. It's one of the few states where crossover vote happens fairly regularly. But Brian Kemp being up by seven, eight, perhaps even 10 or more points, there is naturally some carryover to that that hits the other races. Because the way it works on this ballot is that the federal races come first. So Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are at the top. So it's not like people are going to vote for the Republican governor and then just kind of, you know, blow off everything else that's on there. You have a federal race before that one, so you're engaged up until you hit what's considered the most important state in the race, a uh, race in the state. So they're going, there's going to be a lot of people who vote Republican because they're voting Republican through Brian Kemp. 
So there will be some carryover there. But like I said, Mehmet Oz is closing the gap. Uh, John Fetterman hasn't been a great candidate. Blake Masters closing the gap. You already have Adam Laxalt in Nevada pretty much guaranteed to win based on the polling. And if those trends play out, that's already a bad enough day. But then you have gaining possibly 20 seats, the Republicans. That's what some projections show. It's a big deal. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, ACT scores continue to drop in Louisiana. Let's talk about it here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to call in and be part of the conversation. Now, in 2013, uh, the state of Louisiana made it a requirement that... uh, that high school students have to take the ACT. They're going to do one mandatory ACT day on campus each year. And most recently, we've had a pandemic that's really thrown schedules into a whack. And so we've had some not great results over the last five years. So it's not just the pandemic. But ACT numbers released on Wednesday show that Louisiana's class of 2022 produced an average composite score of 18.1 out of 36. That's a decline of 0.3% from the previous year, and it's the fifth consecutive year the composite score has declined, mirroring a national trend of declining achievement that's now at the lowest level in 31 years. There have been movements that have pushed for de-emphasizing even in, in Louisiana, even we have some efforts to de-emphasize these collegiate tests, the, the ACT, SAT, stuff like that. But I have a, a in, in Louisiana's case, I have a theory and I wanted to share the theory and, and get y'all's feedback. If you want to two, three, two, 15, 42, you can also uh, send a message to the app chat. Here's my theory on Louisiana's problem in particular. We made the test mandatory during the school year. Every high school student knows that one day a year they're going to be taking the ACT and they're going to be doing it multiple years there in high school. By de-emphasizing going out, studying for and preparing for the test, by saying, okay, we've got these ACT prep materials for your schools, we've got mandatory school days, Kids aren't busting it trying to do better on the test because they know the obligatory test is coming. It's not like they're paying for they're having to pay for a test and they're going to do the best they can on it. They're just going out there and doing the test on the appropriate school day. Now, some students will sign up for multiple days of the year. They'll they'll go on, they'll go for the Saturday test sessions, things like that. But a lot of them know they can count on that one day a year. They have a half day of school where they go and they take the ACT in a classroom and then they're gone. And they know they have these ACT prep materials that they can log into or that they have these books they can study. So they do that. By overemphasizing, I think we've actually caused kids to not worry about it. It's just another standardized test to them. And I think that's part of the problem with our scores. Now, part of the problem is, yes, again, emphasizing these big tests too much, which don't, I mean, 
that uh, these these tests don't really measure college preparedness so much as they're they're a prediction as to how well a kid is going to do in college. And the higher you score, the higher you get, the higher the score you get, the more appealing you look to those college. Like this kid's going to be successful and make us look good. We still need. I'm. I'm I don't like standardized tests. I understand the need for data and the fact that we do have to talk about uh, that we do have to talk about you know tracking this data, making sure kids are on level. You know, we talked about it earlier this week with this push for the summer literacy program. We do need to make sure that kids are on the appropriate level, but at the same time. We need to be measuring growth, and we need to be tracking growth a lot more than we are. There are some kids who, yeah, they can't cut it. And that's nothing against them, just for whatever reason, they aren't going to be able to cut it at the level that they're expected to. Now, some of them will absolutely go out and floor everybody and become the best at whatever it is they choose to do. But some of them simply do not do well in that test environment, or some of them simply do not retain information the way that you're expected to on that baseline level for a particular age or grade level. And I really and truly think that by making it to where kids just show up for a day to take the ACT, not having to pay for it, not having to put any extra effort into studying and busting their butts to get the best score possible... You've overemphasized it to where the kids are desensitized to it. Two three two fifteen forty two. If you want to call in, be part of the conversation. There are things that we need to do in order to fix education, and those things that we need to do. There are, we all have ideas, school choice, four-day school weeks. Uh, we have, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, on the school choice front, whether it's vouchers, whether it's the, like the Magnet Academy system we have here, whatever it is, getting rid of standardized tests, going to uh, uh, standards-based grading instead of the traditional 100-point scale, whatever, the, these different ed reform ideas, there's, there's studies there are multiple studies on multiple parts of each of these proposals and they all differ from one another. And it's not until we put them in practice that we really see whether or not they work. And even then, some of the things about them work, some of them don't. But when we start emphasizing the testing aspects too much, I think that's what's causing a lot of the problems that we end up seeing and it makes it much more difficult to track things. You know, Florida, uh, late last year, Florida announced they were getting rid of massive end-of-the-year testing. And what they're going to do is they're going to do periodic tests through the year. And they're going to track the growth that way. So it's not getting ready for some massive test. It is, hey, we've got this test coming up to measure what you've learned and how ready you are for the next thing. And it gives teachers a chance to go back and reassess and make sure the kids know it. If they scored too low on something, it gives the teacher a chance to go back and help them get to where they need to be.
All right, we've got Sue on the line joining us now. Sue, how are you today? I'm good, Joe. How are you? I'm doing great. So um, another issue with the mandatory ACT testing is that before we made it mandatory, kids that were not going to college were mm-hmm. not taking the ACT test. Yeah. So it wasn't just that their parents had to pay for it, because I think that um, having vouchers for kids whose parents can't afford the ACT test is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a good idea for you to have kids who are not on the top university track, who are on the um, jumpstart track, which is, you know, like a... Uh, technical college or um, I'm trying to think of the right word, like trade school type, you know, jobs, those kids don't need to take the ACT. And so now that everybody is taking it, like we have this big group of kids that we know have no plans to go to college Mm -hmm. that are being forced to take the ACT. And I mean, their scores are atrocious. And so, and they don't even try on the test because they know that it's not going to benefit them. Um, and so anyway, I just want to add that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, and that is a good point. I, I didn't think of that, but you, you're right. That is a good point. You have every, when you're forcing everybody to take the test, even when they're, I mean, we have in Louisiana, we have the jumpstart program in our high schools. If you're not planning to go that four year university route, you get on the jumpstart thing and, and, and you're better qualified to go to a two year school. You're better qualified to go to a vocational school or anything like that. But it's for kids who aren't planning to go to that four year highly academic university. Why are those kids then forced into the ACT situation? You're absolutely right, Sue. And that's a huge waste of money for the state of Louisiana. So I'm a former high school teacher, and I've given that ACT test many times. And, I mean, those kids just sleep through the test, or they don't try very hard. You know, and they're not in – those kids are not in classes that are preparing them to make a high score on the ACT because they're geared towards technical school and trade schools. Oh, I've, I've, I'm right along there with you. I've woken up many a kid from the ACT, so I, I feel See, you there. You <laughs> All right, Sue, thank you very much All for the right, call. Thank the, you. The phones are no lighting up. Let's get to them. Uh, we've got – who we got on the line, Mark? we got Suzanne. All right, Suzanne, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. You, then the scores are low is that – there are many universities and colleges who are not requiring the ACT. It's mm-hmm. optional to report it. So people aren't taking it seriously. That is another good point. Yes. Um, I, we, we met, I, I, know where you, I, I know where you were coming from on that, but we missed the first part. Can you, can you say that first part again, just so everybody who's listening understands? Okay. Just another comment about the ACT is that many colleges and universities yeah. are making the ACT score optional. Mm-hmm. Um, and just going by grades. So I guess unless you really want a scholarship, um, people are just opting not to report their ACT scores. So maybe not as many people are preparing for it and trying to get that top score um, in order to get admitted or to get a scholarship. Yeah. And the, there is a certain level of ambition or lack thereof behind it, too. You're, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, Suzanne, thank you very much for the call. We need to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, more of your calls. I see some of y'all on the board. We'll be back here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to call in and be part of the conversation. Uh, let's go, before I switch topics, let's go to the phone. We've got Renee joining us. Renee, how are you today? Yeah, they're, they're not putting enough into the, into ACT. They're doing the kids a disservice. It shouldn't be once a year. It should be once a month with tutors, study material, because the answers don't change unless the woke culture someday destroyed the true answers. They're not changing. Them answers could be like there 
there, no matter how many books you read, there's going to be the correct same answers. And they should have prizes. You see how them kids say, oh, hey, Hershey bars for a bicycle, a, a notebook? Well, do that with the test. You know, it's because the capitalist world is a capitalist country. Reward the top kids, top five. Don't be like that eliminator island with just one winner. Like the top five or ten winners, a bike, a nice notebook, a laptop, something. Motivate them like the movie stars and all these people that do great things for great rewards. That's what we do like dogs. You don't pet us, we ain't going to come to you for any attention. Yeah. All right, Renee, thank you very much for the call. All right, so if you still want to call in about that that subject, you can, 232-1542. You can send a message to the app chat. But before we go today, there's a story. It's really been below the surface for a lot of politicians or for a lot of politics. Politicians are paying attention. They're actually mad about it. But for you and me, you know, if we listen to national news talk, we pay attention to national news stories. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a big part of what I focus on. I try to make sure that I bring you guys enough state and local stuff, too. But the national politics, the, the news right now, the, the big news of the day is national politics. And that's something that we cover a lot. There's one bit of national politics that nobody's really talking about, except in certain circles of the resistance, the, the people who are uh, feverishly anti-Trump to the point of delusion. One of those people is Evan McMuffin. I'm, I'm sorry, Evan McMullen. The guy who ran as an independent against Trump in 2016 came nowhere close, right, uh, racked up a bunch of campaign debt and refuses to pay his vendors. Oops. Um, but he's running as a Democrat against Mike Lee in Utah. Nobody in politics actually expects Evan McMullen to come really close to Mike Lee. Mike Lee is popular among his voting base. He's done nothing extremely scandalous. He can weather a lot of storms just because he's not a very controversial guy. But he's one of two Republican senators from Utah, and the other Republican senator is Mitt Romney. Since... Since he came to the Senate, Romney has tried in what's, uh, what's described at National Review as a balancing act of being a high-profile Trump critic while also remaining within the mainstream of the Republican Party. A number of other tr prominent Trump critics have fallen into the trap of defining themselves by their opposition to Trump, which both weakens their influence in the Republican coalition and elevates Trump's position. This is, again, coming from National Review. And I agree, generally, with that statement. Mitch Romney... I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I've combined Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney, and that's, that's actually the most terrifying thing I've ever imagined. But Mitt Romney has refused to endorse Mike Lee in the race. And he said, well, I'm friends with Evan and friends with Mike. But Evan McMullen is running as a Democrat. Evan McMullen is running for a party and will caucus with the Democratic Party as a Democrat. He's out there to try to defeat Republicans. And if Mitt Romney wants to be a Republican, 
It's one thing to say principles over party. It's another thing to sacrifice those principles to spite a party. And Mitt Romney hasn't made that leap, but by not endorsing Mike Lee, he's dangerously close to it. The thing to remember about Mitt Romney is that he does not like conservatives. He does not care for conservatives at all. His entire campaign in 2012, 2020, it's an end of a very exhausting week. Not 2012. 2012. One of the signature aspects of his campaign in 2012 was his campaign basically saying, I don't need you conservatives. I'm going to get the moderates and win. And he lost. Because conservatives felt like they weren't needed. They stayed home. You had a guy who wrote the foundation for the Affordable Care Act in the health care law that passed when he was governor. Mitt Romney hates conservatives. It's why he's not endorsing Mike Lee. It has nothing to do with Trump and everything to do with the fact that he does not like conservatives and he does not want conservatives to be successful. But it was conservatives who got him elected to the Senate and he turns around and he spites them constantly. He doesn't have to go out and be a big, raging anti-Trumper like Liz Cheney was. He can stay middle of the road, criticize Trump, be against Trump, but Republicans would still generally like him. But the fact that he's standing on the sidelines and not saying a thing about Mitt Romney's race is really rubbing a lot of Republican senators the wrong way. And they're getting pretty mad in the background. And they should be because the party that Mitt Romney swears fealty to would suffer if Mike Lee does not keep that seat. You guys have a fantastic weekend. That good weather is right around the corner. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter uh, at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Sign up for the show notes, JoeCunninghamShow.substack.com. I'll talk to you guys again on Monday. Shannon is offsides next here on News Talk 96.5, KPL.